we're not going to stand quite yet. I want to kind of put it into perspective. Um, Zach covered the pulpit last Sunday and the Sunday before that. Uh, I started in Daniel 1. We went through verse 8, and we learned about Daniel. Um, you go through the history of Israel, and you know he starts with Abraham, and then uh, you watch as... as um, uh, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel come out of Egypt and they then enter into the promised land with Joshua and then you go through the book of Judges and then all of a sudden a, a king is assigned in Saul and then David rises and then Solomon comes after David and then the kingdom is split and you've got a series of kings in the north and in the south and uh, kind of a destruction and now we come to the close uh, where Judah's fallen and and uh, the book of Jeremiah was written in this time of, of occupation of the Babylonians. And Israel's falling as a nation. It went from, you know, great border expanse to being a nation under siege by the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And this brings us to the life of, of Daniel. And uh, Daniel uh, was about 14 years old when uh, the Chaldeans surrounded Babylon. Excuse me, when the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, surrounded Jerusalem. And uh, Daniel witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem, saw the death of his parents. Uh, he was taken from his home uh, and taken to Babylon where, um, you know, at, at, at 13 or 14 years of age, he had already done his bar mitzvah where he'd gone from a boy to a man. His father had imparted to him the things of the Lord. He went with three other friends, uh, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah. All of them were uh, Jewish young men that had gone through their bar mitzvah. They were um, strong in the Lord. And they come to Babylon where uh, though they're spiritually men, physically their, their manhood is taken from them as they're placed in the realm of the eunuchs. And I don't need to explain that. It's an awful situation. Um, they're young men that are considered worthy to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And, um, and these four guys are selected. Their names are changed. Their language has changed. Their country has changed. Their citizenship has changed. And we find that through all this process where they're being uh, attempted to be indoctrinated and intoxicated with the wine of the king, etc., we found at the close last, last time in Daniel 8 that it said, but Daniel, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. And that's what we closed with in our last study as we went through the first eight verses of the book of Daniel. And today we're going to pick up and take a look at, at Daniel's standing, committed, not compromised, but committed to the things of God. And it's a fascinating passage because it deeply ministered to me. I just got back from a 12-day a trip to Poland, London, and then it culminated uh, with a trip to the Reagan Library. I traveled with 110 pastors from Iowa, New Hampshire, North Carolina, and Nevada. Uh, these 110 pastors traveled with Governor Mike Huckabee. We went over to Poland, to Krakow, went through Auschwitz and Birkenau, the death camps of the Nazis. Uh, we witnessed Nova Huda and where Pope John Paul II was used of the Lord to bring down the, the communist wall in Eastern Europe, uh, backed by Reagan and, and uh, Margaret Thatcher. We traveled over to London. We went to Parliament, met with Liam Fox, who was the Secretary of Defense under uh, uh, the, the Parliament there. And uh, we also witnessed uh, the birthplace of Winston Churchill Blenheim Palace and also his place of burial, which is a small little church in the outskirts of a backwoods village in England. Um, we were all deeply touched. We understood and, and studied liberty. We worshiped in the chapel in the basement of Parliament, uh, one of the most beautiful chapels. It's probably about 600 years old. Uh, there is a chapel right there in Parliament. It's hard to find a place to worship in our capital, but there 
in England in the basement of, uh, of Parliament is a place of worship. Uh, we sang praises to the Lord there. We had Liam Fox, the Secretary of Defense, uh, who shared with us of the Lord, and he's a staunch defender of the unborn, uh, pro-life believer. Uh, it was a fascinating journey. We met members of the Solidarity Movement under Lech Walesa and, and who had witnessed Pope John Paul II coming to Poland when it was communist in 1978 and seeing the transformation of that nation. Uh, then we came over here and, and went to the Reagan Library and uh, Mike Huckabee spoke in the evening. 110 pastors were in, in uh, attendance. And it was an enormous move and I, I'll never be the same. It deeply touched me. And then to come to this passage of scripture, which... You know, I didn't orchestrate it. God did. And we've just been going through the book of Daniel. But this passage deeply ministered to me. I pray it does to you as well. And with that, please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Verse 8 begins, but Daniel. Would you all repeat those two words? But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And then everyone say, now God. So it's but Daniel, now God. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you in the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, I'm not in full agreement with this passage, but of course... (laughs) I'm required uh, because we teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And um, so I'd rather skip this passage. I just don't think vegetables are very good for anybody. I'm kidding. (laughs) I mean, look, I look fatter. Uh, I was thinking, you know, elephants eat just grass. They don't eat meat and they're fat. And then you, you look at a lion or a cheetah and they eat meat and they're fit and trim and they look good. I'm just saying. So, verse 17, and as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king interviewed, he interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So really that last verse, verse 21, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel's 14, this is an autobiographical statement. And in verse 21, he says that he continued until the first year of King Cyrus. That's 70 years that passed. So at the writing of this, he's 84 years old maybe 83. He survived Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar ends up dying. And before he dies, he goes insane. He goes mad, comes out of the insanity, and then comes to a saving knowledge of God. Wrote in Daniel chapter 2, verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God, 
and he's the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. And you've been able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar would fall at the feet of the God of Daniel, the greatest king of the greatest nation on the face of the earth that had vanquished Jerusalem and brought it to rubble. Daniel brought him to his knees through the power of the God that he would not compromise but was committed to. And that's the power of a person that would stand in in absolute commitment to the things of God. So let's ask God's blessing. Lord, we do ask that you would guide us, that you would teach us the difference between the committed or the compromised, that we would be able to see with our own eyes through the power of your living word what you call us to do. And Lord, I pray that you just tie it all together and minister to every heart, that we would be forever changed, challenged, and empowered to be Daniels of of our decade. And so God, please, I pray that you'd minister. Holy Spirit, come to this earth, this earth, and minister to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, please be seated. I was so moved by the things I asked you to repeat that verse 8 begins with, but Daniel. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. And then it says, now God. Now God brought Daniel into favor and goodwill. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he wouldn't defile himself. Now God brings favor to, to Daniel and goodwill to Daniel over the chief of the eunuchs. And this is, this is the story of our lives. Every day we make decisions. Every day we come to a place where we can compromise. But compromise always takes things in the opposite direction of where we want to go. Every day we're left with this place of compromise. And I look at Daniel's life. This is a man who didn't compromise. He stood in the presence of the king who had destroyed his, his home, who just, who'd killed his parents. The likelihood is, you know, Daniel had witnessed in his lifetime, especially at the age of 13 or 14 years of age, when he had had this rite of passage into manhood, he knew the history of Israel. The history of Israel was a history of compromise. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, compromising with the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Abraham compromising by lying that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. Sarah uh, allowing uh, his, her husband Abraham to marry Hagar, the, the Egyptian ma- uh, maidservant. And then we know that Ishmael came from that, uh, that marriage or that that connection. And as a result, you have Ishmael and Isaac. And now you, to this day, you have Islam and Christianity and a war in, in the worlds. Uh, Esau sold his birthright uh, for a bowl of red bean soup. He compromised. Aaron compromised, and thus he wasn't allowed into the promised land. Samson compromised, and, and with ba- uh, not with Bathsheba, but with... Uh, Delilah, great name, isn't it? Uh, Compromised with Delilah. And uh, he lost his eyesight and his strength when his hair was cut off. Uh, Even after that, you had David. Uh, David compromised with Bathsheba. His child died. Uh, the, The kingdom was split. His children no longer listened to him. Solomon ascended to the throne. He compromised by bringing to himself pagan wives. And as a result, the kingdom was divided. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, we witnessed as these two Jewish folk compromised and the Holy Spirit struck them dead. And then the worst of all, we think of Judas who compromised, sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And, and throughout the history of Israel, it's just this, this constant theme of compromise that leads a nation of people to their death and their demise. I was touched by this trip and I'll never be the same. I'll never be the same. The trip was paid for by an unknown source. I was given the gift and my wife was given the gift of traveling. We left LAX, flew to JFK. From JFK, we went to Frankfurt, Frankfurt to Krakow, landed in Krakow, Poland. There we traveled uh, over to 
Auschwitz, which was a, a concentration camp, a work camp. And we've heard that name, we think awful things, but it wasn't really as bad as Birkenau, which was just a stone's throw from Auschwitz. In, in, in Auschwitz, we walked through and we saw over the, the gate on the entrance to Auschwitz, it says, Arbeit mach frei, Arbeit mach frei, work will set you free. Every Jew that walked through the gates of Auschwitz, every Jew that walked through the gates of Birkenau saw these words in German, meaning if you work, you'll be set free. And, and as we witnessed this and we saw the suffocation cells where, where folks would be left there to hang by their shoulders as their arms were tied behind their back and as they would collapse, they would dislocate their shoulders and they would, the Germans would light a candle and, and remove the oxygen from the room and they'd suffocate to death. There wasn't even enough room as we'd walk through some of these cells and these chambers to even breathe. It was suffocating even for those of us who toured through the sites. The darkness was enveloping and claustrophobic. Your chest was tight. We walked out to where they would shoot them at point-blank range. And, and bullets weren't enough. They couldn't kill fast enough. And so they started to develop different methods. And so we saw there in Auschwitz the first attempt at a, a gas chamber, but they didn't have any way of disposing of the bodies. And so they had to create crematoriums to burn them. So they moved it over to what they called a death camp, not a concentration camp, but a death camp. The camp was solely designed for the mass killing of, of what would be six million Jews. And, and the rail cars would come in, and we saw the line of rail cars. And the rail cars would be packed. They would be, they, they would be um, uh, rail cars that would be used for, for cattle. Uh, and, and, and for storage. And, and cattle would be treated better than the Jews would be. They would pack them in so tight that, that the Jews couldn't lift their hands to their face. There would be no facilities for, for uh, restrooms. There would be no water. There would be no food. Endless journeys from the lands where they would be taken from as they'd be removed from their houses and put in these cattle cars, all their possessions removed from them, their suitcases. And they would be just pushed into these cars so tight that they couldn't breathe. And, and as these rail cars would travel through Germany and the people would be moaning and screaming and misery and thirst and dying of hunger, Christians in, in Germany, a nation that was used by God to be the hotbed of the Reformation and the, and, and the growth of Christianity and Western civilization where you would have uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would be one of the ministers, Martin Luther, which well, he was used for the, the transformation of the church itself. It was the hotbed of Christianity. And 20 years after this amazing move of God, this nation then descends into the abyss and is now responsible for the death of 6 million people. It becomes the hotbed of life to, to the, hot, uh, the, 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 the center theme of hell itself, the center point of destruction of humanity where they would call Jews not human beings but rats. And, and, and as these rail cars packed with Jews would come through the towns of Germany on Sundays and they'd be whining and crying and, 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 and dying of thirst, the, the Jews would hear them from their churches and their places of worship as they'd be singing the hymns in their German hymnals and they would hear the cries of, of the Jews dying in these rail cars. The Christians wouldn't stop worshiping and go out and help. No, the Christians would sing louder. And the rail cars would continue on to these death camps and the crematoriums as the chimneys would, would burn and blaze and the smoke and the ashes would cover all of Poland. Ashes were scattered everywhere in Birkenau. Ashes that they couldn't handle would then be placed into the rivers and flow out to the ocean. And death camps and billowing smoke from these crematoriums. They didn't take it from just concentration camps. They took them to death camps. 
And there in Birkenau, there was a line of, of, of railroad tracks that went right down the center of the camp. And on this side, barracks as far as the eye could see on the right, barracks as far as the eye could see on the left, and rail cars. And as the rail cars would stop, it would be the end of the line. And at the end of the line, there were two gas chambers with crematoriums at the end. The people would exit the rail cars, and, and by the point of one finger of an SS guard, someone would be sent to a a barracks and the others would be put back on the rail cars or would be marched down to the crematoriums. They wouldn't even wait. It was the whole purpose that these are ready to die now. These will die later. It wasn't an opportunity to use them as labor. They, they, they gave them mindless labor. They didn't accomplish anything. And we would walk through the rows and the rooms and we would see children's hair that had been cut off as their heads were shaved and, and the, the cushions of, of the German couches and chairs would be filled with the hair of these infants and these, these women and, and men. We saw wallets made of human skin. We saw the shoes of of infants that filled an entire room. We saw awful things. And here as they would be ushered off of these rail cars and the point of an SS guard's finger meant life or death. He would continue for a wee bit or continue on to death. And all with the promise that work would set you free. All with the promise that you're going to be just fine if you just do what you're told. And these, these Jews would allow themselves to be ushered as lambs silent to the slaughter under the death of 900,000 Jews of the 1.1 million people that were gassed and incinerated in these boilers of Birkenau. 900,000 Jews. What struck me and stunned me was the fact that 900,000 Jews were killed by 36 SS guards. Only 36 SS guards killed 900,000 Jews. 36. A minority eviscerated a majority. Because these Jews had compromised their freedom for the sake of security and they got neither. They were told they'd be all right if they just did this. They'd be all right if they just did this. They were told that they weren't going to be gassed. They were going to have showers and a delicing. And so silently, even though they saw the billowing smoke, they still believed it, hoping that if they gave up their freedom and if they didn't fight and commit themselves to God, if they just went along, they'd be fine. And 36 SS guards took these silent lambs and incinerated them after they gassed them. 900,000 Jews killed by 36 SS guards. 36. A minority killed a majority. As I looked at that, I thought to myself, here we are in America. And today, this Sunday, across America, 85 million Christians gather to worship in churches just like ours. 85 million of us. In a nation of 320 million, there's 85 million of us. We are the largest minority in America, which makes us a majority. And of the 85 million of us, we allow a minority to dictate to us that our children are no longer allowed to receive biblical education in their public schools. The 85 million of us tolerate the removal of scriptures from the public edifices of our government buildings. The 85 million of us, in order to receive our security, deny our freedoms so that we allow them to tell us we can no longer pray in school. Along the trip was a man by the last name of Murray. He was a minister. His shoulders were slumped as though the burdens of the world were on him and I watched him from a distance. I thought him to be a peculiar man. He looked to me to be embittered. His face was soured. His countenance was heavy. He traveled with us. 
I wanted to know his story. I didn't know much about him. Everyone else seemed to have a smile on their face. But this man, Mr. Murray, Pastor Murray, I didn't know much about him until I was able to bring him aside in the lobby of the hotel in London. I asked him, who are you? He said, well, my mother was Madeline Murray O'Hare. She was the one responsible for removing prayer in the schools in America. He says, I carried that burden with me. My mother was an awful woman. She was murdered. I feel responsible that I didn't do anything and I've committed the rest of my life to stopping it. He witnessed what happens when the godless take over and 900,000 people die at the hands of a minority. As we sacrifice our freedoms for the sake of security so we're given a dry, crusty piece of bread and a, a soiled pot of water, we continue to march down the rail lines into the gas chambers and the incinerators and the crematoriums. And his burden was the silence of the pulpits in America as we're watching as a minority is dictating to the 85 million of us because we're unwilling to stand and be committed to the things of Christ. And we tolerate it. We compromise. Bit by bit, it's removed and we continue to just be content with it. Maybe I had the privilege at 50 years of age to remember prayer in schools when I was a young boy, but my children have never experienced that. And somewhere along the line, to even open my mouth and to say something, I'm laughed at as though I'm some sort of a strange human being, as though that idea is unconscionable, as though it can no longer be attained in a nation where we declare religious liberty. I was burdened by that. 36 SS guards wiped out 900,000 Jews, and they did nothing. They just marched. We left Birkenau. We traveled to a town called Nova Huda. You see, Poland is an interesting nation. It has been a piece of pie that has been sliced by the kingdoms of Europe from its inception. Poland, at the outbreak of World War II, had finally regained its boundaries. They had regained their language. They had found strength and started to serve God. 95% of the nation is Catholic. They go to church. The churches are filled in Poland on a Sunday there's a presence of God. And for those of you who detest Catholicism, I'm sorry. Yes, we agree with the Eucharist and certain things about Catholicism, but the reality is they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you have a problem with that, you have a problem with me. If we don't stand together, we'll fall apart. As I walk through Nova Huda, you see, what happened in World War II with Poland, there was a prime minister in England at the outbreak of World War II. Germany had been inundated after World War I, and they'd finally found in Adolf Hitler somebody who would bring and restore Germany to its great pride once again. And with the Bolshevik Revolution and communism infiltrating all of Western Europe, fascism rose in opposition to communism. Fascism, much like communism, is a man-centered government. Realizing that, that the rights come from the state, whether it's communism or fascism, rights come from the state, not from God. People say that fascism is the far right, communism is the far left. I disagree wholeheartedly. I look at communism and fascism as the same. I look at it as more like a, a horseshoe. And at the top of the horseshoe is a representative form of government that rights come from God, not from man. That this nation of the people, by the people, and for the people would have a new birth of life, a new birth of freedom. 
this idea that these are inalienable rights endowed by our creator. But down at the bottom of the horseshoe, you find what is in common, fascism, communism, both man-centered governments, power from the centrality of the government, not from the reality that we're all created equal, endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. And these forms of government, the rights come from the government, not from man. And so fascism was an attempt of man to stop communism, which was another government of man. Both were centered around a central dictator, whether it be the Dolce, who would be Mussolini, or Adolf Hitler, Herr Hitler. And so as fascism rose in Nazi Germany, and all of a sudden they started to rearm themselves with this idea of a superior race of people, much like the Babylonians and the Chaldeans that ruled the world, this Aryan race would would decimate and do away with the inferior races, the Jews. They would no longer call them humans, they'd call them rats. And so they rose in opposition to communism. Communism had come through Karl Marx, he was a Jew. And they would stand in opposition, they would fight, they'd want to remove these rats from their community. And so as this power base began with the brown shirts and Nazism running rampant throughout all of Germany and then Austria joined in, Adolf Hitler was ready to take the Sudetenland and Czechoslovakia and Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister of England, went and traveled to meet with Hitler and tried to hold him off by a a series of appeasement and compromise. And the problem is that when you compromise with the devil and you get into a business deal with the devil, you find out you're a junior partner real quick. And he said to Adolf Hitler, and Hitler said, give me the Sudetenland, give me Czechoslovakia. By, by historical factors, they belonged to Germany. Even though they had sovereign borders, even though they had sovereign people with their own government, Neville Chamberlain pulled his support for Czechoslovakia and the Sudetenland and said, Hitler may have it. Hitler said, that's all I want. I want peace, a piece of this and a piece of that. Neville Chamberlain ceded the Sudetenland, ceded Czechoslovakia, uh, excuse me, and then, and then Hitler took them. Neville Chamberlain came back to England, declared as the plane touched down in London, he said to all of England and the world, he said, we have achieved peace in our time. Eight days later, the Luftwaffe, under a blitzkrieg with tanks, mowed in to Poland. Hitler had made a deal with Stalin. He said, give me half of Poland, I'll give you the other half. So the Poles had to face as this blitzkrieg came into Poland and the Germans rolled over the Polish army and wiped them out. And as they fought and they battled against the Germans and their people were massacred and decimated, then Hitler turned around and continued the war in Western Europe and then seceded the rest of it to Stalin and the Bolsheviks as they rolled into the other half of Poland. Hitler would deal with Stalin later, but the pie of Poland was cut in half. And here their land was decimated. And Hitler would take that portion of Poland that he had conquered and he would set these death camps up and the trains would all descend upon Birkenau and Auschwitz. And death would reign in Poland. And there in Poland would be a man by the name of Maximilian Kolbe, a priest. One of the churches here in our town is named after him. That Catholic parish is built in the remembrance of a man who stood in, in Auschwitz. When a prisoner had attempted to escape, they not only killed the prisoner, but they brought in 10 other prisoners and said, you will die on behalf of the one who tried to escape. And one man cried out and he says, but I have a wife and children. At which point, this political prisoner, this priest, Maximilian Kolbe says, I have not a wife nor children. I will take his place. 
they brought him into these suffocation zones in Auschwitz. And as he sat in that room with the candle lit, as for two weeks, he lay there without water or food on his knees in prayer with his arms tied behind his back and his shoulders dislocated, crying out to God and praying. He wouldn't die. The other nine died quickly. But Maximilian Kolbe kept calling upon the name of Christ and praying. Finally, in frustration, they wanted to do away with him because they needed the chambers for others that they wanted to kill. So they came in and injected his veins with that which would stop his heart from beating. And he simply put his arm out and allowed them to inject him and he died. The janitor witnessed that. He went on to testify of a priest who stood in defense of the Jews. And a young Catholic boy going through seminary heard the story from the janitor firsthand and his life was deeply touched. His name was Carol Wojcia who would go on to be Pope John Paul II. Moved by Maximilian Kolbe's life, he would realize that you don't compromise. You stand in defense of those things that are important to the Lord. You're committed to Christ. And so as this happened, Neville Chamberlain allowed Poland to fall. He allowed those people to be decimated. He realized what he had done. And at that point, there was a man who had been deeply influenced. And this is part of the trip that we took to London. We went to the Churchill war rooms in the bunkers of London where Churchill directed the war effort of the last remaining nation in Western Europe as he stood in defiance to Hitler. And why did this man succeed in defying Hitler and this fascist regime? Is because Winston Churchill was born in November of 1895 in Blenheim Palace. He wasn't raised in Blenheim Palace. His mother had traveled there for an evening dance while she was pregnant. And she danced so much that the child was born prematurely in one of the rooms in Blenheim Palace, which was the palace of his ancestors. His parents were anything but good. His father called Winston retarded. His mother was a brazen hussy. Churchill's father died of syphilis. His mother had an awful disposition about her. They never visited him. They never loved him. They never cared for him. Churchill never was embittered to the absence of his parents. He said of his mother, I loved her, but at a distance. He always remembered his father well, even though his father never gave him the time of day. And Churchill, in the struggles of all of this, continued to have his life transformed because, you see, when he was born in November of 1895, what entered into his life in December of 1895, when he was just 20 days old, was a woman by the name of Mrs. Everest. You see, Mrs. Everest became Churchill's nanny. Mrs. Everest was moved by a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon, a great evangelist of England. She had been touched by the life of George Mueller of Bristol, who had worked with orphanages and was an evangelical. R.C. Chapman, who worked in Barnstaple, who, as Spurgeon said, was the saintliest man he ever knew. Mrs. Everest grew up in the low church of England. She was an evangelical, and she loved the Lord with all of her heart. And while the Churchills were away with all of their activities and neglecting their son, Mrs. Everest would pour into the life of this little boy and he'd be so touched that he would give her an endearing term and called her womb. That was a name, he called her womb. Womb taught Churchill how to pray. Taught him how to memorize scriptures. He grew with a Christian worldview and saw himself as a knight of Christendom. He understood that there was evil. He understood that there was good. He knew as he would declare later that Nazism was paganism and stood in opposition to everything that was Christian and everything that was good. 
He was raised 21 years of his life in Victoria, England, under Queen Victoria, who was a widower, but who had been deeply influenced by the evangelical movement of, of England through Spurgeon and Mueller. And this Victorian England had established this, this high level of manners and civility that had been touched by the likes of William Wilberforce, who had brought in child labor laws through the Methodist actions of John and Charles Wesley. And as Christianity integrated in every aspect of, of Queen Victoria's life and through Victoria, England, you saw as this Christian nation was established so that even uh, a, a chapel would be put in the basement of, of Parliament. Now, the chapel in the basement of Parliament were the servants of the king. Those of Parliament have their own chapel. We weren't allowed to go into that. I was okay with it. I'd rather be a servant of the king. But in Victoria, England, that's where Churchill grew up in his early years and witnessed this power of Christendom and believed himself to be a knight of Christ. And he rose quickly through the ranks because though he wasn't the smartest child in some respects and he almost died of, of pneumonia on a number of occasions, he was a sickly boy in his childhood, he still grew with this inspiration and believed in a destiny. And he saw free will and destiny as the same thing, that we walk in that calling God has upon our life. And we do it fearless that we're immortal until God's done with us. He was finally graduated from Sandhurst and went into the military, served in India. And, and 21 years of age, his father died. He didn't get back in time to be there with his father when his father died. But in the same week, also Mrs. Everest died. He made it back in time for Mrs. Everest's death. When he walked into her humble abode in London where only the poor would live, he saw her there on her, on her deathbed, struggling to breathe. When he came into the room, his remembrance was that, womb, Mrs. Everest said to him, Winston, your jacket is wet. You're going to be cold and sick. She was more concerned with him than she was with her own sickness. He loved her. Loved her so much that when Winston Churchill died, there wasn't a picture of his parents by his bedside. There wasn't a picture of Clementine, his wife, by his bedside. There was a picture of Mrs. Everest. Deeply touched. In London is her tomb, the tomb paid for by her, her loving, faithful charge, Winston Churchill. To this day, his estate still cares for the gravesite. What moved me is when we left the palatial estate of Blenheim Palace to the back country of England to an obscure church in the middle of nowhere a tiny little church that you would miss and that most of the tour guides don't even want to take you there. But we went and we gathered there. You see, Time Magazine called Winston Churchill the man of the century, the 20th century, the greatest man of the 20th century. You would think for a man of such stature that his grave would be one of magnificence. But there it was in this tiny little church graveyard, so insignificant that you'd miss it if you blinked. Greatest man of the 20th century there buried in a small churchyard in a small non-remembered church. But that was the church that Mrs. Everest would take him to, to worship. That's where his heart would be sealed. Even in his, his burial, if you ever witness it, you see that Taps has played and then Reveille has played. Battle hymn of the Republic in amazing grace. He would want the world to know that there was a resurrection when Reveille was played. He wanted the world to know that his heart was steadfast in the Savior. He wanted to clarify to all the world that he was a follower of Christ. So moved was his life by Mrs. Everest that as a young boy, being so influenced by her, 
He started when he was transferred to India as a, as a young soldier. He started to read authors of the Enlightenment and started to wander from his Christian faith and became an agnostic and maybe at worst an atheist. He started to struggle and detest all the things that Mrs. Ever stood for. He went through a season of rebellion as a young man, thinking that he had the world handled until he was captured and put in prison in the Boer War. And there in a prison languishing, he remembered the prayers that Mrs. Everest had taught him, and he began to pray those prayers in that prison in the Boer War. Miraculously, he escaped. He saw the sovereign hand of God deliver him from that and began to reassert his Christian faith and pursue it and read the scriptures again and continue to stand. And you read his writings and you see how he had a deep love for the things of God. He would rise to the ranks of the admiralty and a number of other things within the British government. He would have the setback of a daughter dying at the age of two. He would have the disappointments of Gallipoli and he would be ushered to the back rows of parliament and be rejected and laughed at and scorned as he would declare that Hitler was a pagan and that Hitler was out to destroy the world and the rest of parliament would laugh. All is needed is appeasement. All we need to do is, is compromise and Hitler will leave us alone. He said, no, you can't compromise with evil. You can't make an agreement. You can't, you can't dance with the devil. But no one would listen to him and they mocked him. And then when Neville Chamberlain said, we've achieved peace in our time and then Poland was invaded, Neville Chamberlain was humiliated. And then in that moment, they broke the glass realizing that England was the next to fall as Hitler amassed his troops. And, and there um, in Dunkirk, the remainder of the French forces and the British forces evacuated Dunkirk and landed back on the island of Great Britain. And they knew that the war was over and the last nation to hold in Western Europe was England. And they broke the glass and asked Church Churchill to become prime minister of England. And there he would say over the radio to the remnant of the British forces and the English people, never, 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 never give up. No compromise. We are committed. And we will fight them in the farms. We'll fight them in the fields. We'll fight them in the ocean. And they will say of us, this is their finest hour. The English people were so moved by his commitment that they stood firm. They held back the fascist forces until America entered the war after the invasion of, of Pearl Harbor and pushed back the forces of evil. And we witnessed this. One of the things that touched me about Poland was going to a town called Nova Huda. You see, after the Allies destroyed Germany, the Western world turned its back on Poland Stalin came in and set up the Iron Curtain and Poland was placed in communism. And there that wall, that Iron Curtain rolled through Eastern Europe and the forces were facing out. And all of a sudden, everyone who was in Eastern Europe was now under the boot of communism and rights were removed. And the 95% of Poland who were Catholic were now told they could no longer go to church, they could no longer worship. And communism enforced themselves upon the Polish people. And they built this city called the New Steel Mill, which is what Nova Huda means. And they wanted to build a city in the outskirts of Krakow that would remove any vestige of God and the children would not be educated in things of God. There'd be no room for Catholicism. There'd be no room for this. We want to take your children. We'll indoctrinate them. We'll intoxicate them. We'll own them. As they began to instill these ideals upon them and they began to absolutely inundate them with a communist message. The people cried out and they stood firm and there was a, a group of, of Catholic priests who said, no, 
We are committed to the things of God. We will not compromise. We will not be moved. And they were beaten senseless and they were imprisoned. And again, this young Polish priest would witness this, Carol, who would become the, the Pope of all of Christendom. And as he witnessed these elderly priests being beaten and left for dead, his heart would be committed to this idea that we stand for the things of Christ no matter how heavy it is. There's no compromise, no matter how overwhelming the government. And he would stand. And in Nova Huda, they wanted a church. And they kept demanding of the communist government, give us a church, give us the ability to worship God. We want to worship God. And by a miraculous set of occurrences, Carol was promoted to Pope, elevated to the highest position in the Catholic Church in 1978. His first act as Pope was to travel to Poland and to go to Krakow and to Nova Huda, where we would state, state these words that to this day moves every heart in Poland. It doesn't do it in America, but it does it in Poland. You utter these words to any Pole, and they'll know what you speak of. It was the words that Pope John Paul II uttered when he was in communist Poland, surrounded by the communists and declaring that Christ must reign here. And he said to all who had gathered hundreds of thousands, he spoke over 30 times in the few days that he was there to hundreds of thousands of people. And he said there in Nova Huda, in a communist established city, he said, Holy Spirit, come to the earth, this earth. And as he pointed to the ground in Nova Huda, the place erupted and the Holy Spirit fell. And worship broke out and the people began to sing praises and the songs rose to heaven. And they were committed to making sure that Christ would reign in all of Poland. And from that instance and what occurred in that place and the countless trips that Pope John Paul II took to that area of Poland, the communists could not stop them. From the first day of his election, I, I love what's written here. Pope John Paul II pon pontificate raised concern in the Central Committee headquarters. There was a Canadian reporter, Eric Margulis. He described it this way. I was the first Western journalist inside the KGB headquarters in 1990. The generals told me that the Vatican and the Pope above all was regarded as their number one most dangerous enemy in the world. Soon enough, people of all sorts, world leaders, clandestine dissidents, and ordinary Catholics sensed the communists were impotent before the Polish Pope. In 1979, when Pope John Paul II's plane landed at Okasi Airport, church bells rang throughout the country. He crisscrossed his beloved Poland, deluged by adoring crowds. He preached 32 sermons in nine days. Bogdan Sajowski said it was a, a psychological earthquake, an opportunity for mass political catharsis. The Poles who were turned out by the millions looked around and saw they were not alone. They were a powerful multitude. The, the Pope spoke of human dignity, the right to religious freedom and a revolution of the spirit, not insurrection. The people listened, as George Weigel observed. It was a lesson in dignity, a national plebiscite, Poland's second baptism. And as a result of that, the Iron Curtain fell. Reagan stood with Pope John Paul II. Margaret Thatcher stood with them. Reagan stood at the Berlin Wall at the midst of the revolution in Poland. He stood at the Berlin Wall and he had written in his speech and all of the dignitaries and, and, the, and the Secretary of State and the State Department told him to remove this sentence. You must compromise. This is not acceptable. This is not acceptable of, a, of, of the leader of the free world. But Reagan would not compromise. He was committed to setting the captives free. And he stood there and he would not remove the sentence. And the sentence was, Gorbachev, tear down this wall. 
And the wall fell and the people were set free. And the church bells rang and the people worshiped. And there I was in Poland just a few short days ago as the Russian forces are massing in the Ukraine and ready to take Poland as well. And our nation is silent. ISIS runs supreme throughout the Middle East. Russia is rising and we're $17 trillion in debt. And the 85 million of us have compromised ourselves to the point where we're on the rail cars allowing, allowing the minority to dictate what we'll do. We're content with a dry piece of bread and a soiled pot of water. And every day we allow a little more to be taken for the sake of security, we compromise. And I was moved and forever changed. And then I come to the passage this morning. I see in Daniel. I see in Daniel a man who heard the preaching of Jeremiah. I see in Daniel who witnessed Josiah's reforms. I see in Daniel who had godly parents and his father. I can imagine him standing on the walls of Jerusalem with his father as Nebuchadnezzar surrounded all of Jerusalem, was ready to destroy his city and his home and his nation. And his father whispered to, to Daniel, Daniel, God is no further from you in Babylon than he will be in Jerusalem. Daniel, stand firm, be committed to the things of God. The walls may tear down, nations will rise, nations will fall, but Daniel, do not compromise. God is your judge. You stand firm no matter what happens to me, no matter what happens to your mother. Daniel, you stand firm. Azariah, Hananiah, Mishael, you stand firm. And these four young men stood firm and they continued to stand firm. They wouldn't defile themselves with the delicacies of the table of the king. They would operate in wisdom and they would cry out to God and they would stand in purpose in their heart. They wouldn't defile themselves. And with that commitment, then now God, now God brings to Daniel favor and goodwill with the chief of the eunuchs. Now God says to Daniel, I will give you 10 times the wisdom of any of the others that serve in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And you know how he gained that wisdom? He read. Young people, listen, study to show yourself approved unto God. Workmen and women who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study, read. And when I say read, that doesn't mean text. That means books. Read. Put down the Nintendo. Read. Challenge. Study. Parents, teach them how to do it. Read yourself. Read your scriptures. Read your Bibles. Impart them to your children as Daniel's dad did to him. Let them know that this nation of the people, by the people, and for the people will not perish from the face of the earth. We will stand not in, not in compromise, but in commitment. That our children will stand firm. There'll be a new birth of freedom. Don't allow this to infect you to where you're silent and you're led as lamb silent to the slaughter. Don't give away your freedom for the sake of security because you'll receive neither. The minority, 36 SS guards wiped out 900,000 Jews. And Daniel's father would say to him, always remember God is with you. You make decisions that will last you the entirety of your life. You affect, will continue with you. But for Daniel, he had a refusal to surrender. And what's fascinating about this passage of scripture and what we close with this morning, this verse 21 says, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. That's 70 years. He was 84 years old when he wrote that verse. He had been committed to God, even though he had lost his name, his citizenship, he was forced to study astrology and magic, but he never surrendered. 
He educated himself in the, in the halls of government. He navigated the halls of the governments of, of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and he did it with expertise. He read, he knew the signs of the times, and he was prepared to navigate through the halls of government. Most people say, we don't do government. I don't read that stuff. I don't participate. You must. There's no room for apathy in the body of Christ because if we don't educate ourselves, if we don't study, if we don't approve unto God, then our children will not be prepared to handle what's coming. And they were 10 times as wise as all the rest of the children. Their parents had taught them how to read. Their parents had taught them how to study. They could navigate through magic. They could navigate through astrology. They understood how, how to rightly divide the word of truth. They understood how to discern good and evil. They had a foundation because their parents had poured it into their lives. And when the king examined them, he found them to be 10 times better than all the rest in that kingdom. They were learned in all skill and literature and knowledge and wisdom. They had visions and dreams because Daniel, but Daniel purposed in his heart. Now God brought Daniel favor. Show your children this. Stand approved unto God. And for 70 years he stood in opposition. He didn't compromise. And when he witnessed the first year of King Cyrus, what does that mean? That means that Nebuchadnezzar died and the Babylonian empire crumbled. What does that mean? That means that 36 SS guards slaughtered 900,000 Jews. But in this passage of scripture, four Jews brought down the Babylonian empire. We're either the committed or the compromised. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 47, you see the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Daniel even brought the king to his knees. I look out at a room full of Daniels and Daniels. And I know that this is the epicenter. Holy Spirit, come to the earth, this earth. I know this is the epicenter of the committed. Of the things that are happening in this fellowship and the lives of the people present are unlike anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. But I know this too, that I traveled to Poland and to London, to Simi Valley with 110 other pastors. And I know this day in 110 pulpits in America, there's an epicenter just like the one here. And I pray that the committed would bring Babylon to its knees. That we will not compromise. That our children would see in us men and women who stand firm. Daniel was inspired by Jeremiah and Josiah and his father and his mother. And all of us today are inspired by the likes of Pope John Paul II. Ronald Reagan, Winston Churchill, Maximilian Colby, Margaret Thatcher. The world is oppressive. We have to get off the rail cars. And the minority will not dictate what we do. We'll not be led to a slaughter any longer. We'll not sing louder as the rail cars go through our town. 
I want to leave it better than I found it. I'm more committed today than I've ever been. And I'm so proud to be your pastor. This is the epicenter of radical change. May God inspire you and move you. And for you young people, I'm 50. I'm getting old. Durr. But as Brett, Pastor Brett prayed earlier for that little boy, Elisha, Pastor Denny and Allison's grandson, his lung was collapsed, his other lung was partially collapsed. He struggled for breath. We prayed and my wife heard a word from the Lord. She said, Rob, Elisha served Elijah. When the chariot of fire took Elijah away, Elijah said to Elisha, what do you want of me? He said, I want a double portion of your spirit. Spirit means pneuma. It's where you get the word lung. And both lungs were filled as we prayed. And that little boy. And I look at you young people. I don't know what God has for me in the remaining years of my life, but I would say to you, may you be inspired. Because you'll have something greater. You'll be inspired. And you'll also have the youth to accomplish it. Ask for a double, double portion. Be the Daniels of the world. Remember thy creator in the days of thy youth. Let God use you to rock the world. Bring down the walls of oppression. Stand firm and set the captives free. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for the picture of Daniel's life that you would orchestrate on this day that we'd be in this passage after that trip. Lord, I know you're speaking to us. Lord, you're not going to leave us as orphans. These are challenging times. But God, we need not be afraid. We're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We can stand firm against opposition as Daniel and Azariah and Mishael and Hananiah and Maximilian Colby and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Niemöller and Pope John Paul II. We can stand firm and be committed to the things of Christ that the captives would be set free. We're immortal until God is done with us. We have nothing to be afraid of. Our job is to stand for the things of Christ no matter if we lose our citizenship, our language, no matter if our parents are taken, no matter what happens, we can always stand for what is right. Thank you for the inspiration of Daniel's life. Thank you, Lord, for the power that's instilled in us by you, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come to the earth, this earth, this place, lavery court in the hearts of all who are present, the epicenter of transformation of our nation and of our world. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.